tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to a very special edition of The Feast. As we mentioned last week in our redux of one of our most popular, and honestly, our favorite episodes, The History of the First Cocktail Party, this week we're bringing you a bonus episode where we get to dig a little bit deeper into the history of American cocktails. Last Thursday, I had the chance to speak at the Rawson House in Heritage Square, Phoenix. And if you haven't been, you gotta go. The house, which is located smack dab in the middle of downtown Phoenix, dates from the late 19th century and is one of the few surviving Victorian homes in Arizona. Built in a luxurious Queen Anne style for a prominent local doctor, it passed through a number of hands, including Whitlaw Reed, who for a time ran the New York Tribune from the house, and William Gamble, a famous gambler and saloon keeper, who was shut down thanks to the rise of prohibition in the state in the 1910s. Now, I was speaking about women and cocktails as part of the debut of their new, fantastically named exhibition, Plate Expectations, which showcases some of the Victorian-era silver and dinnerware that once was used in a home. And of course, what Victorian household would be complete without an opulent punch bowl or even a cut-glass cocktail set? But if we were to think more widely about what was happening in America at that time, How do these punch bowl and cocktail sets mesh with the rise of temperance and the support of prohibition from organizations like the WCTU, aka the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and the Anti-Saloon League? If you were to take the WCTU's opinion on it, you almost would be forgiven for thinking no American woman ever touched a Sazerac or a Martini from 1890 to 1920. But think again. The age of the flapper in the 20s and 30s, sipping illicit cocktails in downtown speakeasies, didn't come out of nowhere. So today, we're going to dig into that apparent contradiction. The story of American women in cocktails, whether at home or at the bar, from the Victorian era all the way to the rise of Prohibition. Now, if you were at the talk at the Rawson House, you had a chance to see some of the great images we found of women in cocktails during this period— from old domestic guides to cocktail books written by women, and more. And throughout the talk, as you'll hear, I'll often be referring to some of these images directly. So if you'd like to see these for yourself, we've put the whole kit and caboodle of images up on the website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. So you can follow along at home or the office or the bus, wherever you're listening. But you don't need the images to enjoy the talk, or... At least I hope not. Anyway, enjoy the talk, and next week we'll be back to our regular format for more great stories of meals that made history. 
along with a couple of important news items as well. All right, enough from me. On to the talk. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight for the new woman's, the new guide, new women's guide to cocktails, whatever we intend with. Um, who here has listened to the podcast, The Feast? Okay, so we have a couple of um, devotees. I hope the rest of you will join us, too, because tonight we are welcoming the author of that podcast. Um, I will have to show some of you what that is. <laughs> um, we are here to welcome Laura Carlson, who is a food historian and historian and writer based in Toronto. And they were delighted to come here to our lovely warm Arizona for a break. She produces and hosts the Feed Pod Feast Podcast, uh, a radio show and a podcast dedicated to the great meals that made history. She has a doctorate in history from Oxford University and has taught history and classics in England and Canada for the past seven years. We're not producing podcasts. You can also find her leading tours on Toronto's great food history. So I, for one, am putting Toronto on my list of great places to go again, because I think that's a Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Wonderful. Um, so with that, let's welcome Laura Carlson. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be here. I actually did grow up in Phoenix. Um, I went to high school here before leaving these beautiful climes to go to all places, Canada, uh, which is not exactly as warm, um, unsurprisingly. But uh, it's lovely to be back. Um, it's lovely to be invited here to speak on a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Um, if you haven't listened to the podcast or the radio show, um, more or less a lot of what I'm going to be talking about here tonight was inspired out of research for one of our episodes, which was an investigation into the story, or maybe better words, of the, the myth around the first cocktail party that was reputedly held in 1917. Um, so last year was the 100th anniversary of the first cocktail party. But um, in case you, any of you missed you know, the big celebrations. Um, <laughs> but as we did more and more research, we realized that this was actually a complete fabrication that obviously people had been drinking cocktails and certainly there have been cocktail parties long before 1917. Um, and so that was a, the episode um, that we focused on and we were actually going to be broadcasting for this week in honor of this talk. Um, but that research led me to this, which is a much more lengthy look at women's relationship to cocktails in American culture um, and certainly tying it into the period of the Rawson House. I wanted to look at all the way from, say, the 1880s 
um, with the explosion, the development of cocktail culture in America, all the way, of course, through infamously prohibition and the repeal of prohibition in the 1930s. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on today. So in 45 minutes, we're going to go more or less through about 50 years of history. So it's going to be a, a galloping romp through American cocktail history. But just to start us off, really almost at the end of our story, um, this was a quote that I had found in relationship to our episode, um, which I found really fascinating. It comes from Vogue in 1930, um, still in the depths of prohibition. Um, you know, it won't be repealed uh, for another three years in 1933. But we have this description here. Um, it's an entire article called The Anti-Prohibitionette, um, featured in this high fashion, high culture magazine in which Margaret Fanning, the author of this article, is really likening the women who are fighting against prohibition in 1930 to the women a generation earlier who went out and fought for the women's right to vote, um, had this freedom of mind, this quality of leadership. So you see this very positive association with the women in 1930 who were fighting against a dry America, fighting against prohibition, with you know the first suffragettes um, or you know the leaders of women um, in the 1890s, the 1900s, and so I really wanted to explore this question to see, all right, if these were the first women to drink cocktails who were also going out and fighting for a vote, really what was then the relationship? What was cocktail culture for women, and how were women impacting cocktail culture? at that time, around the 1890s, the 1900s, when it certainly wasn't the first time, but when that fight for um, women's right to vote was really starting to become a huge topic nationally. And of course, part and parcel of the rise for perhaps temperance movements and what would eventually lead to prohibition as well. So that's what I'm going to be looking at mostly today is we're the new women. Um, and that is a term that's often used to describe that first generation around the 1890s to the early 1900s. The women who were fighting for equality, um, were they the first flappers? Were they uh, people that were drinking cocktails? What was their relationship to cocktails as part of this early feminist movement? Um, so that's what we're gonna be looking at a lot through the course of this talk. But of course, to go a little bit earlier, I wanted to explore as well, what is the history of cocktail culture in America? We have to really contextualize women's relationship to cocktails within the broader history of cocktail culture in America. And certainly it is a long history. Um, mixed drinks in general, you can find punch recipes, for example, all the way from the 1600s and the 1700s. George Washington had, in theory, his own eggnog recipe, a good boozy eggnog that had things like brandy and rum and everything. I mean, it was, it was quite a potent drink. Um, so certainly we're looking very far back if we want to go to the earliest origins of alcoholic mixed drinks. But usually when we talk about the development of cocktail culture, and it really is an American phenomenon of the cocktail um, becoming this element of social drinking um, and the social experience, we really see that dating from around the 1860s um, or the 1870s. That's really the start of it. And if we even want to pinpoint that even further down, most people will point to this singular book as the first reflection of a cocktail culture. And that is, of course, Professor Jerry Thomas's How to Mix Drinks, or the Bon Vivant's Companion. Um, and it comes out right in the middle, well, earlier end of the Civil War. But this is going to be the book that really defines 
cocktail culture. Um, he himself was a bartender. He is writing for fellow bartenders. And there's this understanding that with the opening of new restaurants, hotels, private social clubs, things like that, there is now an expectation that there will be mixed drinks and cocktails available. And this will never really go out of fashion as a book. This book is going to be in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth editions all the way throughout the 19th century. And it's even, you can certainly buy it today. It's experiencing a bit of a renaissance thanks to the, the boom in cocktail culture that we've been living with for maybe last 10, maybe even 15 years. So certainly cocktails by the 1860s, they are on the scene and they're even gonna grow further by the time we get to 1900. So again, a, a wider lens of what exactly is um, cocktail culture in America at that point in time. But if we think about Jerry Thomas, um, who Jerry Thomas is, who Jerry Thomas is writing to, it is mostly men. Um, a bartending is a man's profession, more or less. Spe specifically, if you are going to be a mixed drink professional, a mixologist, as we would call them today, um, that really is going to be the people who are expected to be behind the bar in a public capacity. These are the people that are certainly maybe the saloon keepers, the tavern keepers. Yeah, maybe you can get a cocktail there. But again, as I was saying, at these restaurants, at these um, oftentimes men's private social clubs that would have their own bar, at the hotels that are increasingly going to be associated with having a, a high-end bar that serves great mixed drinks, the people behind that bar are more often than not going to be men and expected to be men. So we even see other cocktail guides emerging, but staying within that professionals speaking to professionals, um, say for the Hoffman House of Bartenders Guide, a, a professional, oh, sorry, a men's private social club. Um, and it is, again, it's a man speaking to other professional bartending men. And that is almost part and parcel of a male-dominated public drinking space. Um, here's our little bit of our Arizona can uh, content here um, with the Congress Hall Saloon down in Tucson, Arizona. Um, as we move into the late 19th century and early 20th century, certainly this is the period of the tavern, the period of the local saloon. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of saloons serving the drinking public, but more specifically, the male drinking public. Because at the saloon, certainly you could get a, a pint of beer, you could get perhaps a mixed drink if your bartender was so inclined, but these were spaces actually that function on a much wider social, political level. This was, um, taverns were often places that you could go and vote. And again, of course, when we're looking at the 19th century, who's voting? It's the men. So they're heading into the saloons to go vote. You could get your pay, uh, your paycheck cashed at a local saloon. You could gamble, you could place bets, obviously you could meet up with your friends. These were multi-functioning spaces, but these were spaces, again, almost exclusively welcoming towards men. Women were either forbidden from entering saloons and taverns, or usually if you were seen in a tavern and you were a woman, it was considered to be kind of a smear on your respectability. Some taverns and saloons would allow women into them, but they would actually have separate entrances for women. They were called the women's entrance or the family entrance, and oftentimes they were a back door. You were kind of seated at the back. There was usually a physical partition. This was something that, again, the genders were kept very distinct because the main part of the saloon or tavern was considered to be a male space. Um, not just because women couldn't vote or women weren't expected to be working outside the home, but also because there was often an association, certainly with saloons, 
that these were these were rough and tumble places. This isn't a place a woman of of respectability of um, society should be seen in. These were these were rough places, swearing, you know, all kinds of things. You wanted to stay out of them. So we have these very male-dominated spaces, but we're also serving so many parts of society with voting, all these other elements as well. And certainly when we are talking about these saloons, these are the places that are going to be the main focuses of attack when we get to the rise of the famous Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, and of course, eventually the Anti-Saloon League, that these spaces were really the ones that were under attack as being a drain on society, and specifically a, an enticement, a negative enticement for men to go and spend their hard-earned money guzzling gin, guzzling ale. Um, oftentimes these taverns and saloons were even owned by breweries um, or distilleries in some cases. And it was considered to be all going into the pocket of the nasty saloon keeper when men spent their paychecks there. Um, and it was taking away in specific as well from the homemaker, taking away from the wife, taking away from the children, all that money is going straight straight into the bottle, if you want to say. And that's really what the WCTU and the Anti-Saloon League are going to be focusing on. These are the negative embodiments of the liquor industry, of the liquor trade. And this is what we need to shut down to get the men back into the home, into this virtuous space, this Victorian virtuous space that is the domestic sphere. That's what we really need to be focusing on. So certainly, of course, most famously, you have Carrie Nation actually going in, and um, these are known as her hatchetations. She would actually wield an axe or a hatchet and go in, and if the saloon keeper or the tavern keeper would not close up shop, she would actually take her axe to, to the bar itself. Um, she was arrested a number of times for doing this. But this was an embodiment of this attempt that this is an evil drain on American society. If they won't close willingly, we will force them to close. And so there, there off she goes with her hatchets, which I just love this, uh, <laughs> this cartoon of her as well. Um, it's pretty fantastic. But okay, we have this, or I've set up this kind of binary. You have men in the saloons, men in the taverns, men in these um, social clubs or hotel bars drinking the mixed drinks. Women are attacking them through the WCTU or other temperance movements very akin to them around the end of the 19th century. So it seems that we have like male drinking, women not drinking. But this is an absolutely false dichotomy to be making. Of course women were drinking. And Drinking and even making alcohol had been part and parcel of putting the woman in the domestic sphere or her role in the domestic sphere, again, since the earliest part of America. Certainly you can go even further back than this, but I'm just taking us back to say even the first, what is often considered to be the first Amer American cookbook, which is American Cookery by Amelia Simmons. And as part of this cookbook, of course, she includes recipes on how to brew beer. There was an expectation that, of course, as part of your making breakfast, lunch, and dinner dishes, you would also be making the beverages. Um, and in this case, she's including a nice recipe for spruce beer, which I think is, is destined for a revival. I always would like to try <laughs> spruce beer. Um, but that's certainly just maybe the earliest and singular example. But if we move throughout the 19th century, um, we will find in many, many recipe books or domestic guides, elements with the expectation that a homemaker, a, you know, a woman, um, would be expected to know how to 
make these drinks, either brewing these drinks or serving these drinks in social occasions. So this one example from 1823, we have again, American domestic cookery, but you will see to which is added the complete family brewer. So you will know all manners of, of brewing techniques um, to serve within the house and home. So this is just an early example that obviously already there's alcohol within the home and women perhaps there is an expectation or an implicit assumption that of course you'd know how to make some version of alcohol or at least serve alcohol in the home. But when we move to our more relevant period of the Victorian era, and we've gotten to that as we already saw in Rawson House, um, a very complex element of entertainment where there are multiple courses, um, where there are multiple sets of dishes, there's a specific dish for every single course or every single item of food that you will be enjoying, of course, there's also a specific glass for all the wines and alcoholic beverages you will be assumed to be enjoying while having a formal multi-course Victorian dinner. So I've just taken this from um, an 1885 uh, cookbook, which is a very nice way of showing the, again, um, entertaining hostess who is welcoming guests or even maybe family into her home um, with all of these different courses that you will have, what is the assumed correct pairing of alcoholic beverage with that? So most of these obviously are a form of either wine or fortified wine. I wanna just at least mention, because this is at least a nod to a mixed drink, that it isn't just opening a bottle of Claret or opening a bottle of Burgundy, the punch romaine um, or Roman punch, which is again, a very hearty um, multi-alcoholed beverage, um, which is really classic throughout the Victorian period and even beforehand, that you would offer this in the middle of a meal as a palate cleanser, if you will. Like uh, here they have it between the releve and the roast, that you need a little bit of a, of a break, you know, between courses four and five, um, <laughs> that you have a nice little, sometimes this was served frozen, for example, nice little glasses, um, but Roman punch really was this nice, rest to the meal, but almost, almost exclusively, I'm trying to think of a recipe for Roman punch that didn't involve copious amounts of alcohol, was always a mixed alcoholic beverage. Um, so we have this already at least assumed, and of course with this dinner, it's not too far to make the assumption that both women and men would have been seated at this dinner. There's no kind of indication here that this was only a men's dinner or what you would only be serving to men. Men and women or a mixed company would be enjoying something like this and you would be going through multiple glasses of different alcohols through your uh, very ornate Victorian supper. But of course, there's also other indications that women were expected to be mixing drinks um, and certainly serving drinks to, I love this book, Beverages and Sandwiches for Your Husband's Friends. Um, <laughs> by one who knows, I love that. Um, but we identified the one who knows in this instance as Mrs. Alexander Orr Bradley and wrote an entire book about serving a company of gentlemen in your home. When your husband brings home his either workmates or his friends or whatnot, you certainly need to know how to whip up some great mixed drinks um, in order to serve them as they're playing a game of cards or, what, or smoking cigars or whatever it is they're doing, a nice mixed alcoholic drink is what is in store for you. And you need to know how to prepare. So here we have again, that Roman punch making an appearance again, but beyond the Roman punch, 
three refreshing whiskey punches um, where you have, you know, pieces of ice, good bourbon whiskey, adding um, ginger ale as well, granulated sugar. So again, there are multiple kinds of alcoholic mixed drinks being assumed that, you know, here for your husband's friends, the implicit assumption being, of course, the wife is the one that is going to be making them, um, or at least directing whoever it is in the kitchen to be making them. So there is a broader assumption of um, cocktail making that's going on um, in the domestic sphere than just a Roman punch or opening a good bottle of burgundy. But we're in kind of the late 1890s or at least let's say 1893. And around this period of time, we can look to other pieces of evidence, other sources to say, all right, to what extent are women being spoken to as potential mixed drink makers or mixed drink imbibers, shall we say. And this is, of course, the period where we're seeing an explosion of the written word in multiple instances. This is the age of advertising. We're entering the age of advertising. So newspapers, magazines, journals, um, oftentimes directed towards a woman's readership. They're just exploding. Um, so we thankfully now can see advertisements directed towards women, again, with that assumption that perhaps they will be making and or drinking cocktails. So this almost is the uh, kind of 10 years later version of beverages and sandwiches for your husband's friends, but maybe with less of an assumption that it's only the husband and the husband's friends who are going to be drinking them. Red Top Rye in 1902 has an entire guide of how to make fancy um, fine, fancy, or mixed drinks, and I love kind of like the saucy lady you know, on the front cover, um, you know, the bitters bottle, the different glasses and whatnot, showing as an expert cocktail maker in 1902, that of course you're gonna know how to make these fine, fancy, and mixed drinks, and you're gonna look good doing it. <laughs> When we actually move to more specific advertisements, I mean, this was very easy for a liquor company to kind of whip up or commission um, a whole series of cookbooks using their fine red top rye. But here we have that, again, almost next generation version of the assumption that the woman or the wife um, would be making cocktails in her home, either to serve to her husband or her husband's male guests, or just in general as part of the entertaining world that was late 1890s or into the 1900s. So here we have a Gold Lion bottled cocktails, and that's certainly a product that comes up in the 1890s, that now don't worry about making cocktails yourself. You can just go to the store and buy pre-made cocktails. Don't worry about all that mixing and measuring. You can just serve that up and it'll be absolutely delicious. But on the other side of things, um, certainly a company still in business, we have the famous Angostura bitters, um, a component in many a classic cocktail, saying the exact opposite of this top commercial or advertisement, um, that don't serve stale bottled cocktails, make, make a fine drink yourself. You can totally do this. And of course, when you make a fine mixed drink yourself at home and serving it with, again, the assumption that you're serving it to a man, um, you're going to use Dr. Siegert's Angostura bitters. Um, so we, again, have these new sources that talk about women potentially making and at least serving cocktails in the home. But again, we're, we're talking very much male-oriented, that this is being served to a man in both of these instances. Were there any indications of women themselves making and drinking cocktails just for themselves? Well, of course, we have Hublines, um, who kind of took the forefront of this whole, well, do women drink cocktails? Well, of course they drink cocktails. Um, and 
In this instance, of course, well, it's the best tonic for the woman, worn out with her home duties or after a you know, shopping trip. Um, this one, again, is a bottled cocktail that you can bring home, simply uncork and pour out for yourself. And you know, don't worry about your husband. You deserve a cocktail, too. That shopping really took it out of you. Why not enjoy a fine bottle cocktail? Your husband and your husband's friends will appreciate your forethought. <laughs> one for the dinner. It, the, some of the wording in these things is just fantastic <laughs> to read through. Um, so here we have you know, a whole range of advertisements, again, indicating that women are not only making, but also, of course, enjoying cocktails. Um, of course, all through various kinds of the liquor trade itself, which you know, is a little bit self-serving. But again, the very fact that we have these advertisements says, all right, there, there might be a, a market for um, for the cocktail among, among the crowd of women. Uh, we also can see from a different series of evidence that the cocktail was something that was not, you know, ashamed in the back corner, but something to also proudly serve and display in the home. Um, and of course, by that we have, again, kind of touching on the Rawson House collection of fine cocktail sets, of course. You want a beautiful punch bowl to display when friends and family come to call. Um, and of course, even your glass cocktail set, fine, fine cut glass set to enjoy a Manhattan or a martini. Um, that comes from 1902, but even by the time we get to 1912, 1913, it's not just the glasses where you drink cocktails from or the punch bowl that everyone can kind of gather around and enjoy, but you actually now have fine sets that involve all the makings of cocktails that you can also have out and have displayed. So a fine bitters bottle, a cherry bottle, a mixing glass, so that these aren't items that are just hidden away in the back of the kitchen, but are to be admired and put on display for any friends that come to call and say, well, have you seen my lovely cocktail set? It's cut glass, it's from Higgins Insider, 1912, 1913. Actually, just this morning, we were actually comparing, you know, it says $40 and $22. Um, around in 1902, we were doing the conversion of what that would cost in today's money. We're looking at about a $500 to $1,000 cocktail set here. So this is not like a cheap IKEA cocktail set. <laughs> this is quite something. Um, this is something you would definitely want to display if you were investing that kind of money in a cocktail set or a punch bowl. Now, the only thing that I'm going to also touch on, because again, we have to keep this in the back of our minds as we move from the 1890s into the 1900s, the really growing power and presence of um, organizations like the WCTU, the rise of temperance organizations like that, that are fighting for either dry states or dry America in general. Interestingly, when we look at uh, a lot of domestic guides, like etiquette guides, um, talking about temperance, when you are invited to someone's home, you do not mention your temperance leanings. You take the alcohol that is offered to you, and that is the polite thing to do. You do not turn aside. This is not the place to you know, bring your hatchet to if you're carrying nation. <laughs> if you're visiting someone's home, the polite thing is to stay silent, drink the lovely punch romaine, and just carry on your merry way, which I thought was very interesting, um, all the way from 1880. So we then, of course, have to talk about women drinking outside the home. Um, all right, so there's lots of different indications, lots of different evidence and materials to show. To some extent, this was an accepted part of entertaining in the home, um, kind of a, a respectable thing of entertaining in the home. Alcohol was part and parcel of it. When we see it outside, however, even by 1897, um, town topics with this 
quote comes from was basically like a gossip rag at the time, basically liking to expose all the high society families to the maybe not so glamorous um, uh, things they were up to. So one of the things that they love to talk about is just the awful trend they saw emerging um, in at least the East Coast of women drinking cocktails in public. Um, and I know, I know. <sighs> I'm faint. Um, apparently Narragansett for a number of years in the summer season was infamous for women drinking cocktails in public. And by 1897, this horrible trend had expanded beyond Narragansett to include the nearby towns. And wasn't this a horrible state of affairs? You, I mean, you can hear just the shock and awe in um, the writer's voice when he's talking about this. And we're going to assume it's a him, but I have no idea. But that certainly is not the only piece of evidence that we see of talking and condemning women who dare to drink alcohol in public. Um, and again, most of the times, so if we think about it, where are they drinking these cocktails are usually, again, in these very male-dominated spaces, maybe perhaps in hotels, maybe in bars. But the overall theme to any of these, and I mean, these can be double, tripled, quadrupled in terms of the amount of um, kind of headlines about women scored, um, declared in the vice of drink habit, all are agreed that young women should practically refrain from drinking. Um, this is over and again, just a negative portrayal of women drinking public. It's not a thing that women should be doing, particularly respectable women, women of society. I mean, and that was half the point of town topics in 1897. Oh, these high society ladies are found tippling in public. How, how dare they? We even have, um, again, if women were seen to be drinking in public, this jewel gin suckers, I love this phrase. Um, <laughs> Lily Langtree was a famous actress. So again, you know, we have this element of, you know, an actress not perhaps being the most respectable of professions at this time, but she had lured society to this public party that she held at one of the local hotels. And uh, newspapers got wind of it. And so the day, days, weeks after, they were talking about the jewel gin suckers um, sipping cocktails, um, a mixed company, of course, um, at Mrs. Langtree's cocktail party. Um, and yeah, this is as early, I believe this is 1903. Oh, is she smoking too? I believe she is smoking. So I mean, oh, yeah. Just absolutely. <laughs> Just an absolute, oh. Horrors. Horrors. But we also, of course, have to get back to the new women themselves, right? I was talking about the new women that were coming up as a movement in um, kind of the late 19th, early 20th century, kind of in development out of what you often is termed the Gibson girl, women who were trying to express themselves by um, gaining higher education, going to college or university, working outside the home, perhaps delaying marriage, delaying children. Um, these were women that were fighting for, obviously, inequality on a level of men get to do this, why don't we get to do this? Um, and so we also see them trying to express this element of equality by going out in public and going out to these spaces that had been previously assumed to be entirely the domains of men. And we have also, of course, the response to this of women becoming more men, man-like, or losing their femininity, becoming more masculine. And these were these caricatures and satires of the new women because this is what they would become by drinking in public. They became more masculine. 
Um, so you have the woman sipping a, I believe it's a cocktail there at a saloon. She was one of the boys, um, is the title of the piece from 1892. And then Life magazine in 1895 imagines what a 20th century club would like look like. And of course, it's an entire inversion of the saloon in tavern that everyone associates with. We have you know the, the man dancing up on the stage where the women are sitting drinking, um, having a good old time. So this is this kickback from this attempt by the quote-unquote new women to express themselves by, again, receiving an education, going out to work, trying to have an equal footing with men. This is the kind of popular media's response to it of, oh, well, they're becoming more manlike. Isn't this, isn't this awful, uh, more or less? But we're going to see this change very dramatically in the next 10 to 20 years. Because by the time we're looking at this kind of 1900 to 1920 era, we have two very interestingly, very disparate images of femininity or womanhood. On one side, we have you know, the happy, virtuous, moral homemaker. Um, the person who is, of course, mixing those beverages and serving sandwiches to her husband's friends. Um, and again, as we are also talking about the rise of um, arguments for the woman's right to vote, we're also seeing arguments based on that kind of image, saying that women are, by nature, more moral, more virtuous than men. They are angels. Um, and that, of course, means that the home is this angelic domestic space. And they should be able to vote because that way they can pull politics out of the gutter, make it more moral, make it more virtuous because of the very angelic nature that women have just by virtue of being women. On the other side, you have the new woman simply saying, well, no, we shouldn't have the right to vote because we're angels. We should have the right to vote because we're human beings. We are equals of men, and we should have the exact same rights as men do, whether or not that's getting a university degree, whether or not that's working outside the home, whether or not that's going out to a tavern or a saloon and enjoying you know, a glass of whiskey and soda. So you're having these two very interestingly, very disparate portrayals of womanhood right around this time. And that's going to also shape the new portrayals and new expectations of what women are going to be related to alcohol-wise as we move towards the years of both the women's right to vote and, of course, the introduction of prohibition, which go, if you know, part and parcel almost within a year of each other. So when we move forward, we're seeing, as we move away from, <laughs> oh yes, um, as we move from like that Victorian, very complex, very ornate dining and dinner service where we have, you know, eight different courses, eight different wines, punch romaine in the middle. Now as labor-saving devices are coming in, um, but also there's a move away from the very, very ornate, very complex element of the Victorian dinner service. The new trend as we move to the first decade of the 20th century is informal entertaining, getting away from that multi-course dinner and into very nice informal entertainment. That's what we should be focusing on. Um, and what's the best way to express that perhaps? Maybe not having people over for dinner, but a more informal space is of course afternoon tea. Afternoon tea, you know, kind of between four to seven, you come over for some drinks, light sandwiches, and you're on your way. Very, very nice. It's an easier thing to also host as as the as the kind of the homemaker if you will so we have new etiquette guides coming out in say 1901 talking about well if you're going to have an afternoon tea 
what do you serve for the new 20th century? Um, well, aerated waters, of course, and lemonade, but we still have punch and wine cups. So there's still some alcohol that's being associated as being appropriate for these new informal entertainments. Um, what I absolutely love is that when we look at this menu book from 1905, <laughs> that's offering an afternoon tea sample menu. Um, here we have some nice light bites, marine herring, rye bread, pumpernickel, but really what you really should start off the entire afternoon tea with is straight shots of vodka. That's, that's really the best way forward. Um, this was her sample menu for a Russian tea. So alcohol very much still in the picture, even for the early 20th century. Um, but we're also gonna start seeing the I don't really want to call it the evolution because that might be too too strict of a line to draw from, but this association that mixed strengths and, and even straight alcohol is now going to be served as part and parcel of these afternoon pre-dinner informal entertainment spaces. Um, and perhaps we can see that slowly morphing into what we would consider to be the blueprint of the cocktail party that you serve canapes and hors d'oeuvres, well, mixed drinks, and when do you have it? You usually have it before dinner. And that perhaps takes us to Clarabelle Walsh and that quote-unquote first cocktail party in 1917, which they're calling, the newspapers love to reflect on this, as the new society stunt. Certainly by 1917, people have been having cocktails again for many years, like Lily Langtree's was in 1902. But now it is all of a sudden considered to be a respectable thing for ladies to hold. You don't even need to put it under the guise of afternoon tea, you can call a spade a spade, and say, well, it's a cocktail party that's served before dinner. Actually, Clarabelle Walsh was famous for holding cocktail parties right after church on Sunday morning, um, which may have been a step too far for some, of, some folks in St. Louis society, but still, um, she was big on her cocktail parties. But we're still talking about fundamentally entertaining in the home, how are things changing for women going out in public and drinking? Or is there now a new acceptance of that? Absolutely. We see, again, as far as early as 1910, this uh, the San Francisco Call, and obviously a newspaper from um, kind of Northern California, starts talking about and at least indicates that women are going out to restaurants, not just to eat, but also to drink. Now, this is a pretty neutral tone. It's not the same condemning tone that we saw back with Town Topics, but it... It's a little bit more neutral. It simply seems to be expressing, all right, this is happening. This is a thing that women in society of refinement and fashion are doing. So it's no longer just the actresses, the Lily Langtrees um, of the world. Now it's the women of refinement and fashion who are going to go out and do it. We also, this is unfortunately kind of right on the block, and uh, hopefully you can read it, but... And in 1912, we have the afternoon tea fat at the smart hotels um, increase the sale of champagne <laughs> and cocktails. And interestingly here, the tone seems to be, well, if you can lead a man to a pink tea, you can't make a real one drink it. Pink tea, <laughs> with the assumption that it is the women driving this trend forward, pink tea seem to have um, been a little bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge term for a afternoon tea that would serve a little booze on the side. Um, pink teas often were um, teas that were focused on a charity event or a cause that you would go um, listen to a speech perhaps and then kind of give money to the specific cause afterwards. But really nothing, nothing gets butts in seats like a little bit of cocktails as well. Um, so it seemed to be that pink teas in particular oftentimes were serving cocktails along with their afternoon teas, hence, hence pink teas. 
But we also have an entire, if we think about again, how far we've come in 20 years, uh, where women really weren't allowed, um, really um, expected, even um, tolerated for being in these male-dominated spaces. We now have an entire bar open for ladies, for cocktails, in which men cannot attend unless they are escorted by a woman. Um, which, again, if you wanted to go into a tavern as a lady early on, if you dared go in, oftentimes you had to be on the arm of a man. Here, if you wanted to go to the Café de Beaux-Arts in New York Ladies Bar, the man had to be on the arm of a woman to go. Um, and interestingly enough, this even lasts, you can see perhaps the dates, 1911 to 1921, it survives into Prohibition. I have no idea what they were serving in 1920 or 1921, but as a bar did survive at least to that extent. And then finally, we have perhaps the clearest example of how things have changed in the last 20 years or so by the Ogden Standard in 1918, talking about how women used to have to hide their cocktails in teacups. Again, talking about this association perhaps of cocktails and afternoon tea for at least the last 15 to 20 years. Now, of course, that point of view has passed and with it, the restrictions of serving the cocktail unless disguised. So now women can easily and freely drink their cocktails, no hiding it, no worrying about kind of the, um, the smirched reputation that they would suffer as a result of it. So that, and I mean, that is only maybe a year, maybe two before prohibition comes. So we have a really interesting, late-breaking kind of women now finally in the cocktail sphere, in the public sphere as well, drinking it. But of course, we cannot talk about cocktails without talking at least about the dry years. Um, you know, 1920 to 1933, the years of prohibition. Um, certainly, cocktails are still being drunk. Um, but I'm not going to focus too much on the flapper, just because the flapper and the speakeasy culture has been done and dusted. What I'm still going to be talking about, though, during these years is the continued impact women had on cocktail culture, even when it was quote-unquote illegal. And on both sides of the field, as what I mean, even writing cocktail manuals during the heights of prohibition, if you see when these are published, 1930 and 1932, we have Shake em Up by Virginia Elliott and Phil D. Strong, and The Art of Mixing um, by James Wiley with contributions from Helene Griffith. Um, so even during the dry years, you have cocktail guides written by women, again, that are in charge of you know, the cocktail shaker or the mixed glass or whatever you want to call it. But we're also going to be seeing Women increasingly fighting for, of course, the repeal of prohibition, the failure of prohibition to do any of the things that a lot of the temperance advocates were hoping for with um, the illegality of the liquor trade. So there's this fantastic um, op-ed that appears, I think it's the Washington Post in 1930, entirely called Grandmother Goes Wet. Wet in that instance, of course, being wet versus dry. If you were wet, you were anti-prohibition. If you were dry, you were usually pro-prohibition. Um, that's very gross simplification, but let's go with it. I'm um, talking about how prohibition, rather than actually helping with um, you know, the, the vice of drinking or curbing the, the saloon trade, you know, getting people out of the house, um, going to these dens of iniquity of drinking. Well, instead of prohibition fixing that, prohibition actually worsened the case. That instead of being able to teach your children or your grandchildren responsible, moderate drinking in the home, again, using the home as that space of instruction, now, of course, because liquor is illegal, um, but of course has not solved the availability of alcohol, people now just go out to these speakeasies, the countless speakeasies, and drink until being blackout drunk. Um, that people actually don't learn how to responsibly drink because of the illicitness of alcohol. And 
the continued availability of alcohol just under illegal means. So you have this, this argument becoming more and more um, vocal from maybe the 1929 to, of course, the age of repeal in 1933. And no organization really represents this more than, I, I call it Womper, just because um, the, the actual lengthy name of the organization is does not exactly go off the tongue. The Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, um, founded more or less by this woman here, um, who, again, features, as you can see, on the cover of Time Magazine during Prohibition itself, um, Pauline Sabin, who actually um, was the heiress to the Morton Salt Company. I mean, she came from quite a high background. Um, but famously, the story goes is that she was at a WCTU or Women's Christian Temperance Union rally. And she heard the president speak talking about how the WCTU spoke for the voices of all women in America. That was entirely like that. That was the WCTU. And she famously was sitting in the audience and thought, well, I can think of one woman you don't represent. And so went on to found the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform. And if you look at kind of the rhetoric of this organization, which is going to grow intensely from its founding in 1929 to a record high membership of 1.3 million by 1933, which is, we did a little bit of the calculation of this, 1% of the US population, which is insane for just one organization. They organize protests, rallies, marches, speeches, um, radio broadcasts, talking about more or less this, that prohibition had failed. Prohibition, because of the speakeasies, because of the continued liquor trade under illegal means, the exponential growth in crime, prohibition should not continue. Um, I mean, they did actually advocate early on for reform, but by kind of 32, 33, they're really, prohibition reform here simply means repeal. Get rid of prohibition, absolutely. And it's interesting when we contrast that with, say, the membership of the WCTU, which at its peak, again, in the 1890s, early 1900s, certainly was in the millions. By 1931, it's down to 372,000. Um, so you can see this dramatic inverse um, of the support, again, among American women between prohibition reform and, uh, well, support of temperance, at least in that instance. Um, and this was going, this organization was actually immediately disbanded after their, their success, the, the actual repeal of reform in 1933. Um, she thought, well, there's no point. We, we accomplished our goal. Let's get on with our lives. So as soon as, of course, prohibition is repealed, cocktails certainly didn't go anywhere. They went to the speakeasies. They went into a number of um, kind of under underground or um, kind of back corners. They come roaring back. Um, people will celebrate, of course, the birth or the return of the cocktail hour um, in early, well, I guess this is December 1934. And as you can see there, even when we're looking at that post-prohibition era, 50% they're already saying, those are women who are enjoying cocktails. We're, we're not seeing any return to it's like, oh, cocktails are for men, to be made by men, to be enjoyed by men. No, women absolutely are part of the new cocktail culture that is going to define post-prohibition America. And of course, that's when we start seeing all those other elements that we have entering 
in association with the cocktail hour, the cocktail party. So we have the cocktail dress coming into fashion, you know, for a bargain $1 that you can enjoy a fine cocktail dress. We also see, of course, women continuing to write cocktail guides and cocktail manuals. Um, we have this from 1935, I just love the photo. And this is actually an Argentine um, cocktail book. But again, it's about the, the homemade cocktail kit, um, homemade or how to make at home your, your famous and fabulous cocktail cocktails from 1937. So obviously the cocktail movement has grown long, long outside of America um, as well. So that really kind of defines this end bit of, of cocktail kind of prohibition, um, women, and they come roaring back to it. Um, so the only thing I kind of wanted to wrap up with was, of course, the Arizona State cocktail, which doesn't really necessarily have a, 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 a strong connection to say a, a woman's invention, but I did would at least want to mention it because back when statehood was for, first proposed in Arizona, um, some Michael O'Leary apparently of the Ford uh, Tavern and Hotel proposes this entire statehood cocktail in the hopes that statehood will eventually be granted, which two years later, of course it will be. But the recipe apparently is very simple. You just need um, gum Arabic or gum Arabic syrup, Angostura bitters, um, rye whiskey, Dubonnet, which is a fortified wine, and then you fill it with ginger ale and you sink a cherry in. And I can, I can tell you from experience, it is delicious. Um, so that, you know, if you want to do a little kind of nod to Arizona State history at home, you can certainly make that um, and, and, and enjoy it. Yeah. It also makes it for like a fabulous red color, which I think is always fine. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I hope you enjoyed that little bonus tidbit about the Arizona State cocktail. We'll put up the recipe and original article from 1910 on the website if you'd like to make it at home. Again, let me just say, it is delicious. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. And if you have any stories about women and cocktails in history, I'd love to hear them. Get in touch at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. And if you're enjoying the show please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you use. It really helps other people discover the show. And that's all for us this week. We'll be back next week with more great stories of meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.